Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Critical mass, hundreds of people have now come forward with sexual abuse claims against the Archdiocese of St. John's. A lawyer representing many of the plaintiffs says that figure may be shocking, but it shouldn't be surprising. The eyes of the law. The first ever prosecutor for the International Criminal Court says the world must not ignore the ICC's investigation into alleged war crimes committed by Hamas and Israeli forces. Sound logic. A biologist in B.C. says he was quietly impressed by a Department of Defense study on the impact of naval training exercises on marine wildlife. It was ice while it lasted, and it still is, but after decades safely grounded on a shoal, The world's largest iceberg apparently decided to do some traveling and has headed for the open ocean. A glasses-half-full kind of guy. Most people would give up after being expelled from Congress, but as former volleyball champion George Santos has established, he's not most people. He's often not even himself. And Central Parker, a Moncton comic book store, is thrilled to be in possession of Amazing Fantasy Number 15, which contains the first ever appearance of Spider-Man. And people will pay a lot for those first web pages. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that covers all the important issues. We now know how many people have come forward with abuse claims against the Archdiocese of St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. 369. Archbishop Peter Hunt delivered that news yesterday during Roman Catholic Masses. It was the latest update in an ongoing insolvency case that began in 2021 when the Archdiocese filed for creditor protection. It's believed that many of the claimants are survivors of abuse at the Mount Cashel Orphanage. The list also includes people who had not previously sought damages in court. St. John's lawyer Jeff Budden's firm represents more than half of the claimants. We reached him today in Montreal. Jeff, it is a a difficult number. Each one of those numbers is is an actual person, a real story, uh, and uh, a painful experience. I know your firm is representing about 200 of these claimants. Did did the tally in the end surprise you? Uh, It was a little higher, perhaps, than I'd anticipated, but Mm -hmm. I, I knew it was going to be a large, unfortunately, going to be a very large group. What were the weeks leading up to September 30th, when, when that was the deadline for people to get their claims in? What were those weeks like for you and your team? We were very busy. We uh, Claims are coming in right up until the last morning as people were just faced with the reality that this was a hard deadline and if they were ever going to come forward, this was the time they had to do it. What are those phone calls like, just that initial one even? There are uh, usually people will will ask for you or, or if it's another member of my team that asks for them. 
and they'd say, oh, I'm calling about the case that's been on the news mm-hmm. and or something like that. Or they might start off by saying, I was abused by a priest or I was at Mount Cashel. And uh, so that's how the call would typically start. It's a difficult phone call, I can only imagine, for people to make. So it's quite extraordinary to just imagine them picking up the phone in, in after so long as well. Yes, in some cases, uh, close to 80 years. 80 years. We had claimants come forward for the first time who were at Mount Cashel in particular in uh, 1943, 1944. What did they tell you about what what pushed them to call now? I think it was the, the fact that this was widely uh, publicized as mm-hmm. the final deadline to come forward if you were to get compensation. It, this is an area of law where ordinarily deadlines in Canada recognizing the, the difficulties people have in, uh, in coming forward. But because of insolvencies and insolvency law, it was necessary to have a deadline in this case. Obviously, these particular people did come forward but I'm sure, as all of us in this field are sure, that many uh, have not come forward and probably never will come forward. And we should also mention not everyone who called is from Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, no, they are, they are now, uh, these clients are scattered all over North America and beyond. And plus, in addition to, that, in addition to the Newfoundland-based claimants, there were claims out of British Columbia um, for uh, men who were abused not at Mount Cashel or in Newfoundland, but by Christian brothers who had been at Mount Cashel, and then subsequently, in the wake of uh, being uh, exposed at Mount Cashel, were moved to BC. Even though uh, many of these these stories, uh, these accounts, are years apart, did you see and hear similarities in the accounts? Uh, yes. While everybody obviously is individual in what they experienced and how it has impacted them, their uh, what they endured was broadly similar. And and obviously, like anybody who has been through that, there there's some common aspects to uh, what they tell you. What does that suggest to you that there were similarities in so many cases, even so many decades apart? Well, one, it suggests a number of things. One is that there was a massive problem within the archdiocese where for decades uh, many men, uh, probably several dozen or more, were uh, abusing children with impunity. And uh, so the uh, we did hear all these stories coming from uh, Mount Cashel, from smaller communities where priests had been, from the, uh, the various schools around Newfoundland, around eastern Newfoundland, and uh, so while the, the situation in which they were abused and the details of the abuse would uh, differ, the, the, the shock and betrayal, unfortunately, is, is the same. Now that these have been filed, claims officers need to review them. So how will they evaluate? The September 30th deadline was not just a deadline to say, you know, I'm. This is my name. I was abused. It was a much more involved process than that. So there was a, a lengthy form that had to be filled out, which provided the opportunity to say, not only what had happened to you, 
but also how it has impacted your life as you've uh, uh, gone through your life as became an adult and in some cases would now perhaps be retired and elderly, how it affected your career, your family life, other aspects of, of your life. And uh, so that's what uh, what these forms ultimately uh, involved. That's what the claim submission involved, uh, involved, and that's what the claims officer are now reviewing. Do you feel that there will be there will be justice for those claimants, you know, who, whose claims are accepted? Uh, I guess it's not really for me to say if people feel they've received justice. That's mm-hmm. that's something individuals will have to answer themselves. Some feel some satisfaction from knowing that that their what they suffered has uh, been acknowledged, and that the uh, hopefully the lessons learned by this archdiocese. Will uh, will echo across Canada. So if if you are and have responsibility for the care of children anywhere in Canada, you will look back at this decision, this insolvency, and others that have come uh, in recent years in Canada, and think uh, I not only have a moral obligation to protect vulnerable children. If I if I fail in that obligation, I'll uh, my organization may may lose everything. So a lot of clients get satisfaction of knowing that they've essentially made it financially reckless not to do the right thing. Jeff, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Jeff Budden is a lawyer in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. We reached him today in Montreal. In his statement to parishioners yesterday, Archbishop Peter Hunt said decisions on the claims should come by April, and he acknowledged the, quote, hurt and pain the legal proceedings have caused for communities, parishes and individuals. It is many times the size of Manhattan and much, much cooler. And for decades, it sat grounded on a shoal in the Antarctic Ocean, just chilling. But a couple of years ago, A23A got up to stretch its legs or leg, or, and now it's really picking up speed and heading for the open ocean, which is news for anyone else out there because it is the world's largest iceberg, which is exciting if you're part of the crew of a new British polar research ship that happened to be in the neighborhood. Most ships would avoid heading straight for an incomprehensibly massive iceberg, but the RRS Sir David Attenborough isn't most ships. Andrew Myers is the chief scientist aboard. That's where we reached him. Andrew, I'm sure you encounter a, a lot of stunning uh, views I- in your work, but what does it feel like to, to, to see this, to, to see the biggest iceberg in the world? Yeah, it, it's quite amazing. Um, it, it's hard to grasp the scale of it because really it just it fills one half of your entire world when you're on a ship. Yeah. Uh, normally you're sitting in the middle of the ocean with the horizon all around, but when you're up against um, A23A, the, the berg, as we've been calling it, uh, it, it's just a wall. It's like a, a white wall that stretches from as far as you can see in one direction to as far as you can see in the other. It's uh, yeah. quite amazing. And how much ice are, are we talking about? We've described in the introduction that it's, you know, many times the size of Manhattan. I've read some other comparisons as well. It's big, certainly. How much ice are we talking yeah. about? It's it's really big. Um, so if you're just looking at it from above, it's about 4,000 
square kilometres. Um, that's about twice the area of Greater London. Uh, in terms of actual amounts of ice, I'd have to run the calculations. It's a bit hard in my head, but you know, you're talking trillions of tonnes of ice. Colossal. So if it's, if it's moving towards the open ocean, what are your concerns? Yeah, so I think it's important to underscore this is a perfectly natural process. Mm-hmm. Bits of ice shelves fall off and float away uh, all the time. It's what they do. They're basically big lumps of ice sliding down the Antarctic continent into the ocean and eventually coming away. This is a particularly big piece. Um, so the risks it does pose um, is if it parks itself in front of uh, areas with things like penguin or seal colonies, uh, particularly some of the sub-Antarctic islands like South Georgia or the uh, South Orkneys, um, that then both denies the local area where the, where the creatures may be feeding, particularly in shallow water, which tend to be more productive, but also means if they want to get to the open ocean, they have to go around this colossal iceberg where, where there's no food. So that can be really devastating to uh, colonies, particularly in the breeding season, which it's coming up to. So soon we expect to see lots of pups and uh, penguins hatching. Um, and so if this was to park in front of those, the adult would really have a hard time feeding both themselves and their chicks. So you could see colony devastation potentially. Where do you think it will end up? It, well, it's hard to it's hard to say with certainty. So Iceberg Alley uh, is is where these icebergs tend to shoot off, but it's quite broad, particularly as you get further away, because we're sort of sitting in the, in the start of several branching currents. Um, but it, it will head over time to the to the northeast and move out into the Antarctic Circumpolar Current proper. So this is the really big, the biggest current in the world. It goes right around Antarctica. Um, so I think it will probably follow similar trajectories to large bergs that have happened in the recent past and will head towards South Georgia. Whether or not it will get there, uh, it's really hard to say. It's very hard to know whether these, how stable they are, how rapidly they'll break up. It, it could go as far as, as, as approaching South Africa even. You talked about how colossal it is, as you put it, and awe-inspiring, I'm sure, to see it. But given what we know about climate change and the threat to Antarctica, what is it like from that vantage point? I mean, this uh, it, it's, it's a bit like wildfires in the sense that it's very hard to ascribe any given wildfire down to climate change, but we know that the frequency is definitely going up. And so the frequency with which these bergs and, in fact, many ice shelves around Antarctica are retreating, uh, and we can we can label that quite strongly as attributed to climate change. So it is quite sombre seeing this. I mean, it's it's a natural phenomenon, but we know it's accelerating, and seeing that much ice just really puts uh, uh, puts it in perspective uh, how we expect the sea level to change in the future and how this will have feedbacks onto the onto the wider global climate. It's um, quite sombering. Well, I wanted to ask you specifically, what kind of impact do you think it will have on sea levels? Uh, yeah, so I actually lead a uh, well, co-lead a Horizon Europe project, which is a large sort of multinational program uh, called Ocean Ice, and it's specifically looking at how uh, the interaction between the ocean and the Antarctic ice sheet will change uh, future sea levels. We know that the West Antarctic ice sheet, in particular, is being me- rapidly melted um, over the last twenty or thirty years. We've seen that quite clearly. Uh, and that has, if that was to all melt, um, which it won't do any time in the very near future, but particularly on longer timescales, it has the potential to raise global sea levels by over three metres, uh, which would be catastrophic. But even in the next coming 80 or so years, so very obviously very relevant with uh, the COP in progress at the moment, um, one of the big things we don't understand is these feedbacks between the ocean and, and the ice sheet, uh, and particularly how the ice sheet could potentially accelerate. Uh, it's very poorly understood and poorly modelled. So we could be looking at sea level rises of potentially up to a metre and uh, over well over a metre by the end of this century. Um, and we find it really hard to model that. There's just a lack of, uh, lack of observations and a lack of theoretical knowledge behind uh, how the 
sheets actually respond to ocean mm-hmm. warming. How long are you going to continue tracking A23A? Um, so we'll be watching it until it gets too small for the satellites to pick up. Mm-hmm. Um, I would expect it would last several more months, potentially even um, you know, six to eight months. It's a bit hard to say precisely, but uh, we'll be watching it while it moves, um, and particularly if it starts coming closer to some of the subantarctic island. What ultimately do you want to learn from A23A? Yeah, so it was very lucky that we were here. We were actually here on a different science mm-hmm. mission, um, but A23 actually lay directly across our path, and we thought this was too good an opportunity to miss with a yeah. really advanced research vessel uh, and an excellent team aboard. Um, so we took water samples continuously, uh, both as we approached the iceberg, as we went along very close to the the front of the iceberg and around two sides and then as we went away from it uh, and what we'll be measuring there is the changes in the physical properties of the ocean so how salty it is how dense it is uh, but also the chemical and biological pro- uh, properties um, because we know that these sorts of icebergs have the potential to stir up the really nutrient rich deep waters that sit underneath the relatively nutrient poor uh, surface fresh waters around antarctica uh, and they can really uh, help stimulate surface blooms of phytoplankton uh, which are the base of the food chain here um, and they can also be quite important uh, for or dropping, explicitly dropping nutrients themselves. They've been effectively grinding over the continent as they came down Antarctica as, as part of the glaciers. Uh, and when they are grounded, they sort of they take up a lot of sediment as well. And as they melt, they deposit that and that can stimulate blooms themselves. So we're really interested to see how this affects both the local region, uh, but also as it melts and it sort of smears its, uh, its effects over very over thousands of kilometres of ocean, uh, seeing how that basically acts to seed the local ecosystems. Andrew, I appreciate your time. Thank you. No, thank you very much. Andrew Myers is the chief scientist aboard the British polar research ship, the RRS Sir David Attenborough. We reached him somewhere in the Antarctic Ocean. When I mention a comic called Amazing Fantasy Number 15, you probably don't raise an eyebrow. Your eyebrows probably remain exactly where they were before I mentioned Amazing Fantasy Number 15. In fact, on that second mention, your eyebrows may even have lowered because it doesn't sound especially important. And now you're frowning because you can't figure out why I keep mentioning it. But if you're in the know, your eyebrows went about halfway up your forehead when I first mentioned Amazing Fantasy Number 15. And they will nearly leap right off your face when I tell you this. A copy of Amazing Fantasy Number 15 is currently on sale at a store in Moncton, New Brunswick. Remy Viano-Leclerc is the manager of The Comic Hunter. We reached him at the store. Remy, why is Amazing Fantasy 15 such a coveted comic book? Uh, well, it is the first appearance of, uh, of Spider-Man. So before he was even in his own title, uh, the Amazing Spider-Man, uh, he, the, uh, Amazing Fantasy 15 was a trial run of the character. Uh, so there's a 10 or 11 page story, you know, the, the origin of Spider-Man. And, and then, you know, a few months later, you know, the initial little popularity, you know, was enough to give him his own book or they liked the character enough to, yeah. to, to expand on him. Readers, readers liked it. Like uh, yeah, it must have been. Yeah, it's hard to say. Nineteen sixty-two. Uh, I wasn't around. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. You actually told our our colleague at CBC News Online, Philip Drost, that if someone wants to invest in comic books, you should get your hands on on Spider Man. Start investing there. Why do you think that's the best place to put your comic book money? 
you know, eighteen years in, it's just been continuously the the title that has you know gone up in value. The old books just keep going up, and and new books often, you know, if they introduce a new character, it, it's where I see it the most. Uh, I'm a reader. I you know, people come in and they want to talk stories. That that's where my passion is. But as a business, you know, it's like I told him, if you want to invest, go to the bank. But if you're going to invest in comics, Spider Man's a smart way to go. You've been trying to sell this one for a few years now, now though. Well, why do you think it hasn't sold so far? You know, it, it's it's not a small price tag. We don't have it on display in the store, so we pull it out every so often just to drive interest. And it's a talking point, so mm-hmm. we bring it with us to conventions and stuff like that. But it takes, you know, it, it's not anyone who has sixty thousand dollars sitting in a bank account yeah. to spend on a on a single item. No, uh, and, and that's what it's listed for on eBay right now. Do you think you'll get that much? Uh, you know, if, if they don't offer that, we're not selling. You know, we're we're not taking offers on it. I guess it is what it is. You know, we're we'll be happy to sell it to the right person, and we're happy to sit on it. You know, it it, it had peaked a few years ago, which is when we really started pushing to sell it, and it's come back down a bit since then. Uh, although it's climbing, starting to climb again. So, you okay. know, for us, it's an investment in time as well, right? You know, we're we paid a certain amount for it, and the longer we sit on it, the, the more it goes up. <laughs> Can you tell us what you paid for it? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, when did it come into your possession, the store's possession? I want to say it was like 2019. But uh, okay. the owner kept it for a while because he liked to say that he owned it. It's it's all his. It's still his, you know. But uh, he kept it in his personal collection for a little while just to kind of have that feeling. And then in 2021, when it peaked, in value we're like okay now's the time to sell it so we started shopping it around and we had a few almost you know close calls then and then in 2022 it really came down in price and even then we had a few you know nibbles and it it comes and goes whenever we bring it to a convention there's always one person who will at least one person who will come out and you know we'll get somewhere yeah is it is it terrifying taking it to those conventions though yeah yeah it's uh you know (laughs) If I, I'm 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 more scared of that than the cash box, and the cash box is its own worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have the private security? I mean, how what do you do? Uh, we yeah, we just keep it. It's you know yeah. next to us the whole time, and, yeah. and we don't bring it to every convention, so it's always sort of a surprise when we have it. We might have it just there for a day, and it's always sort of next to us. Yeah, you want to be as careful and as possible. I, I bring it home with me at the end of the day. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Y- You've mentioned uh, in the other coverage uh, that that it's not in amazing or perfect condition. So, what condition is is it in? First of all, uh, so it's a scale of ten. The highest one that has ever sold sold was a nine point six. So, as far as people know, that doesn't exist higher than a, a nine point six out of ten. That one sold for three point six million dollars oh American, I, I, I believe. This one is a three point five. Okay. So uh, it's which, been it's been you know, flipped through. It's been read. It's been enjoyed. Yeah, it's, it's I think a, there's it's a charm to that. It, you know, it's 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 complete. Uh, it's held together. All the staples are there, and the pages are all there. But it is, and you know, you're starting when you get under four. That four to six is sort of the the happy grade of looks okay, and then start yeah. to get under four, and it starts to starts to get a little rough. But you know, you're with this kind of book. There's no no grade that it won't be worth something. You know. Understood. People I, will buy coverless versions and pages missing because they'll just to have it, just, just to have a piece of it. If the call comes, 
They're willing to pay what you're asking, maybe more. Are you emotionally ready to, to let it go now? Oh, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> you're over it? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, 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 <laughs> I, you know, I'm still, still a business. Uh, I was ready to sell the next day. It's fun to show off. If we sell it, you know, that's what we're, we're here to do. Take some pictures. Uh, but, you know, we've had it long enough now that if if there was any uh, little bit of like, oh, we could keep it around for a little while, that, that's gone. Yeah. Uh, Remy, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Remy Vianola Claire is the manager of the Comic Hunter in Moncton, New Brunswick. That is where we reached him. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. The International Criminal Court says it is stepping up its investigation into alleged war crimes committed by Hamas militants and Israeli forces. Chief Prosecutor Karim Khan made the remarks after visiting Israel and meeting with top Palestinian leaders in Ramallah for the first time since October 7th. And in a video released yesterday, he made it clear that the law is concerned with everything that occurred on that day and every day since. The law can't be interpreted in a way that it denudes it from meaning that hollows it out, that fails to achieve what the Geneva Conventions were meant to do, which is to protect the most vulnerable of society, babies and children, the old and the infirm, civilian men and women. This is an insistence that is required by parties to the conflict and by Israel. I made that very clear here. That was International Criminal Court Chief Prosecutor Karim Khan in a video released yesterday on social media. Luis Moreno Ocampo was the ICC's first prosecutor from 2003 to 2012, and he helped to establish the office. We reached him today in Los Angeles. Luis, we know this investigation began back in 2021. The chief prosecutor, Karim Khan, now says the court is further intensifying its efforts in these cases. So what will that mean and and look like, practically speaking? Well, I think the most important meaning is that people can think about this problem with empathy for the victims. So we worried about the October 7 victims in Israel. We are worried about the hostages because Hamas has hostages and that's illegal. We are worried about Palestinians because Hamas is using Palestinians as a shield. But also we are worried about Israel military operations because Israel has no right to siege Gaza. The biggest problem I see legally for Israel is that it cannot close water and fuel for 2.2 million Palestinians living there. That's illegal. 
In addition, each bombing should be investigated. Could be a war crime. You know that Israel does not believe the ICC has jurisdiction in this conflict. So, given that, what can the ICC really do? The fact that Israel does not recognize the International Criminal Court is not a problem because Gaza is the territory of Palestinian Authority, and in October 2012, Palestine was recognized as a state by the UN. In 2015, Palestine became a member of the International Criminal Court, a state party. In 2018, Palestine requested the ICC to intervene. And in 2021, an investigation was opened. Now, the prosecutor can decide to investigate Hamas, to investigate Israel bombing, the siege. is his decision. And if he decides to investigate Israel crimes and indict people, then it's up to the state parties to arrest them. For instance, the prosecutor already indicted President Putin, and Russia is not a member of the ICC. However, Putin declined to go to South Africa and declined to go to Brazil because he could be arrested. But that conflict continues, as we know. Well, the problem is that it's not just about the ICC. Here, the drivers are states. So U.S. probably has the biggest role here. Egypt has a bigger role here because the siege is done by Israel and Egypt. So Egypt could open the border on its side, and Arab countries who are concerned about this issue also could help, in particular, not just in Gaza, in West Bank. It's not just about the ICC, it's about the other actors at play. Uh, Mr. Khan yeah. also said, uh, as you as you likely heard, that the ICC will proceed not on the basis of emotion, but on, quote, solid evidence. So based on, on your expertise and your, your experience, what kind of evidence will the court be looking for? Well, the prosecutor has the discretion to select the incidents to be investigated and the targets. So the prosecutor could say, okay, what I will prosecute first is the Hamas attack in Israel. Or I could proceed to investigate the siege of Gaza or crimes committed in West Bank. So he has full discretion for that. And some of the evidence is obvious. There are some well-recorded evidence on the attack on October 7th. We have evidence public evidence on the hostage situation. We have public evidence on the siege. And the prosecutor could take this evidence, but it's his discretion. He knows what he has in his hands. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Khan has said that they are actively investigating both Israeli forces and Hamas. But as you know, Hamas is, is a non-state entity. It's been designated a terrorist organization by many countries. Canada uh, is one of those countries, certainly. So, how does that complicate the court's investigation into Hamas in particular? Well, for instance, the prosecutor could decide to request Qatar to arrest the Hamas leaders who are in Qatar. There are different options for him. That's why we cannot make a judgment because we don't know the cards in his hands. What will justice look like in your in your view? for innocent victims, innocent Israelis, innocent Palestinians. What would justice look like? Sadly, we just can mitigate their pain. Imagine if you have a daughter killed in the kibbutz or, 
or your family in, in one of the buildings destroyed by the Israeli bombs. So you, you never can avoid the suffering. We can mitigate the suffering. And most importantly, the most important thing is avoid retaliation, avoid, avoid revenge. The idea that killing people will solve the problem is wrong. War increases conflict. Justice is a way to manage conflict. But what do you say, Luis, to people who don't have faith in international institutions right now? Uh, maybe <laughs> don't have faith in the the ICC uh, because of, of what they've seen. Well, look, ICC is a new idea. The humanity used wars to manage conflict for 5,000 years. So, yes, we are much more used to the war idea, but we need to learn from the past. War produces no solution. For justice to work, we need to support justice. That's why Canada, Germany can do more. What would that look like? What do you think Canada should be doing? Well, in five days will be the 75th anniversary of the Genocide Convention. We promise never again. So we can start to say, look, this could be a genocide, Israel. And Canada, as a signatory of the Genocide Convention, could recognize it's a risk of genocide, please stop it. That triggers the obligation of state parties to prevent. And therefore, if Canada says that, U.S. cannot ignore it. Do you think, realistically, any Canadian official is going look, to say what that? Is, what is, okay, what, what is not realistic is that the world will survive if we accept genocide is normal, that is not realistic. And for me, the Hamas attack is also genocide. Even if not, you, can, you cannot compare October 7 with Holocaust. No, but you don't need to kill millions to be a genocide. But I believe the only way to be in peace is to understand, okay, I, I, I care about the Israeli killed, but also I care about the Palestinians bombed. I care about the Palestinians with no water. I care about the victims, and we need political leaders making the point. We cannot accept genocide, whoever committed. Luis, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for the call. Bye. Luis Moreno Ocampo was the first prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. We reached him in Los Angeles. It's not every day that a marine biologist applauds the work of the Department of Defense, but Kieran Cox has to admit he's impressed. Mr. Cox is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Biological Sciences at Simon Fraser University. He recently headed up a team that conducted a study of another study, a study completed by the Department of Defense focused on the impact of weapons training exercises on marine mammals living off the coast of British Columbia. And according to the SFU team, it wasn't half bad. We reached Kieran Cox in Nanaimo, B.C. Kieran, if you were giving this this DND report, if you were grading this DND report, what grade would you give it? 
Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, so I think the report is done extremely well. Um, so the contents within the report are done certainly to an international standard, so quite a high grade there. Um, I think the thing that uh, my colleagues and I were keen to explore is the aspects of the report, um, you know, moving forward. So the things that aren't in the report, but certainly there's things that we'd like to see included in the future, and that's where I think you can really get uh, an A plus, if it will. Well, let's let's dig into to what you're saying there. First of all, what specifically does it get right in your view? Well, so certainly the fact that it happened um, in general. So you know the fact that they stopped what they were doing, commissioned a third party consultant to examine the acoustic impacts of this training, mm-hmm. and then based on that evaluation, implemented mitigation measures. Um, that's you know that's quite rare in how and voluntary. We should point out. Yes, this was done voluntarily. So there's no um, no real legal framework to say that this has to be the approach that people are taking to noise pollution. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I think is very commendable about um, this kind of a uh, strategy. Okay, we'll get to, to the reason it's not an A+. Uh, what do you think it left out? What should it have looked at or should look at in the future? The thing that my colleagues and I are keen to see included in future versions of this kind of work certainly are the non-mammalian taxa, so the fish and invertebrates in the oceans that we know make lots of noise. They communicate uh, acoustically, so they are, you know, humming to tell their mates where they are and, you know, ward off um, intruders and things like this. Um, But also invertebrates do that as well. And so we're keen to have those species included in this. And then also other sources of noise pollution. So certainly small arms, do make quite a bit of noise, but also vessel noise introduced into the area should be considered as well. So what kinds of impact do did they find, you know, that these small munitions exercises were having? Yeah, so I mean, I think their big concern was the distances at which they can have uh, an impact. So when you fire a series of weapons from a vessel, you'll find that within a um, 113 meters of that vessel uh, above the water, that marine mammals could experience permanent hearing loss. Within 219 meters, they could have temporary hearing loss, and up to uh, 1,500 meters away, they could have some sort of behavioral response. And so that was the big concern, really, was like, are we going to scare, startle, or cause these species to have any sort of hearing impacts? And so that was their big focus, and they you know, were able to determine the specific distances and then use that to inform the route forward. So in, in in that route forward, the mitigation things that you were mentioning, the mitigation tactics, what kind of specific things does the, does the DND report outline? So it goes through a series of them and it basically ranks them. They go through a series of options, but these include things like not training when visibility is low due to weather conditions. If marine mammals are in the area, how are you going to train your staff so that they can monitor them, report them, avoid them, um, and then put in motion some sort of ceasefire so if there's a marine mammal within, you know, 113 meters, it's more likely to be seen by the monitoring effort. It can be reported and then the training can be halted. And we should mention that, that those activities that had been paused have now resumed. Is that the right step forward in your view? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Department of Defense has a uh, very serious job to do, right? They need to ensure that personnel are combat ready and that involves training the Wanda Fuga Strait is used by many people, you know, shipping lanes, marine mammals, many other species. So, you know, this is going to be an area of overlap. Um, I think it's very easy to say, well, you can go do it elsewhere, but, you know, then there's going to be concerns elsewhere. So I certainly do think that, you know, in an effort to be combat ready, um, the question really is how do we minimize impacts 
more so than just avoid, you know, training altogether, because we are fundamentally talking about the government's commitment to national security. If if that roadmap isn't isn't drawn out effectively or implemented, uh, as you hope it will be, what's the long-term concern that you have? What will it mean? Well, if, if everyone's not on board, um, you know, we could mismanage one of the most pervasive and unregulated pollutants in waterways, right? We have regulations for many pollutants, and noise is one that we're talking about right now. And so we don't want to mismanage that, right? We have a real opportunity right now where I don't see this as a very polarizing issue. The Department of Defense is willing to talk about it. The shipping industry, the conservation scientists are all willing to sit, you know, in the same space and have this conversation. And so I think the, yeah, the the main aim for that strategy is to kind of give everybody a look at what the whole government objectives are and how we can contribute, be it innovation within the um, shipping industry, uh, awareness of new data or novel techniques within conservation science. So I think, yeah, that's really the opportunity there. No polarization in an issue. Imagine that. Yeah, yeah, that's the hope. So far, I mean, it's been really incredible, right? We reach out. um, Yeah, and, you know, the shipping industry, to their credit, is is keen to talk about how they can make vessels quieter or slow down policies like the one we have going on in British Columbia right now and trying those things out. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a really it's a really exciting time for trying to manage a pollutant of this scale. Kieran, I appreciate your time. Thank you. No problem at all. Thanks for chatting. Kieran Cox is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Biological Sciences at Simon Fraser University. We reached him in Nanaimo, B.C. To some, it might evoke the words of the poet Dylan Thomas, who wrote, Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. To others, it will bring to mind country music's Dan Hicks and his hot licks, who sang, How can I miss you if you won't go away? I speak, of course, yet again, reluctantly, but probably not for the last time, of George Santos. He's in a tough spot. All his potential employers know that his infamous resume needs some updating. At one time, it mentioned stints as a college volleyball star, a Wall Street wizard, and a guest star on Hannah Montana. But of course, we now know all that experience is bogus. He did have an impressive job in the meantime there, but unfortunately, he was let go. Although in the things that have actually happened department, he could now add that he's one of only six representatives ever to be voted out of the U.S. Congress. But that was three days ago. Ancient history. For George Santos, every day is a chance to reinvent himself and a time to add something new to his LinkedIn profile. As of today, you can hire the self-described congressional icon yourself through Cameo, where D-listers sell personalized greetings to fans, like this sample Mr. Santos posted to the site, which would cost you a mere $200. Megan, how are you, darling? I hear that you're getting some tough heat in the press and that life might be a little rocky now. Let me tell you something. 
If you believe in what you stand for and if you fight for what you do and you stand by those convictions, screw the haters. The haters are going to hate. Look, they can boot me out of Congress, but they can't take away my good humor or my larger than life personality, nor my good faith and the absolute pride I have for everything I've done. So this is about you, Megan. Be yourself unapologetically. Just love yourself. Just make sure that you don't buy into the hate and stand your ground and don't let them force you out. Don't let them bully you. You do you, girl. I'm cheering for you. Mwah. That was former U.S. Congressman and current Cameo star George Santos. When it came to making films, director Charles Officer once said, it doesn't get easier, it just gets more possible. But he made it look easy, and he showed what is possible. Mr. Officer died on Friday after a long illness. He was 48. The Canadian director put a spotlight on characters who usually don't appear on the big screen, and on stories that usually don't either, about gun violence, urban renewal, or sickle cell anemia. The foundation of his career was a commitment to telling the stories of black Canadians. And as Charles Officer told the CBC's Matt Galloway in 2018, it wasn't always easy to get those stories told. It's been very hard. I mean, I get a, probably a list of maybe five more questions, I think, in my, in my pitches about the, the sort of market value of what I'm saying. Where's the audience? Whether that story would appeal to a broad audience. Yeah, absolutely. Or is it just... A Absolutely. black film. Matt, I haven't made a, a fiction feature film since Nurse Fighter Boy. I've, I've made, been making documentaries because of a reason. I am completely and utterly optimistic. If I, if I don't maintain that, that, that sort of charge, I think I'm doing no good for our next generation. I mean, I'm in this for life. That was film director Charles Officer talking to the CBC in 2018. Mr. Officer directed half the episodes of the CBC series The Porter, which focused on black train porters in Canada during the 1920s and won 12 Canadian Screen Awards earlier this year, including one for direction. Arnold Pinnock is the co-creator of The Porter and was a friend of Charles Officer. We reached him in Toronto. Arnold, that optimism and that drive to tell stories that we heard Charles Officer speaking about there, what did that drive and optimism look like in person? Personally, what that drive meant to me uh, was that I was not alone. Charles just had that ability to make you feel like he was linking arms with you uh, as a fellow artist and was behind you 100%. And even though, in my eyes, Charles was this huge figure and had achieved so many great things in our industry, he made you feel like he was right there with you on the line, empowering you to go after your dreams to tell stories, um, be it that black stories about this country and about your experience. And um, before that, I'd never experienced that. So um, he, he was not just a mentor, but he was someone that was in the trenches with us, even though uh, we thought he had made it. You'd followed his career for a while then before you actually got to work together on The Porter? 
Yeah, it, it's it's so funny. The first time I I met uh, Charles, I believe Clement Virgo was doing something for Black History Month with Norm Jewison, mm-hmm. and um, I was walking outside, about to get to my chair, and you know, someone turned around and said, "I see you, brother." And I turned around, and it was Charles Officer. <laughs> and I was so blown away because I was like, you know who I am, you know? And, um, you know, we hugged it out. And we, we talked a lot. He goes, we, we've got to get together sometime. And then the next time I saw Charles, he was uh, premiering The Mighty Jerome. And there he was <laughs> once again showcasing to me black history, stuff that I never knew anything about. I knew nothing about him. And the one thing about Jerome, his father was a porter. And, of course, I was going down that road into wanting to get together to make the story of the the porter, the CBC show. And I got to share with him the obstacles as well as the desire and the dreams of wanting to, you know, do something like this. And without hesitation, he was like, you got me. I'm there with you. What did he tell you as you started working together about how he pressed through all of those obstacles to keep telling those stories? He's an artist. Like, he was in this. He wasn't going anywhere. This was his calling. And no matter what obstacles laid in the in his way, it wasn't going to stop him to tell, want to tell these amazing stories. And he was going to collaborate with people who were like-minded. So for me, when you hear that, you know you're in the right place. You, you're inspired. You you, you want to walk um, arm in arm with someone like that. And it wasn't just me. You know, Charles used to call me Saturday mornings, and we'd have to stop and start our conversation so many times <laughs> because just regular people on the street would stop him and say, hey, Charles, how you doing, man? Or, you know, like, remember, we're going to talk next week. He goes, yeah, don't worry about it. I'm going to talk to you next week. Or, you know, someone would say, hey, I'm really proud of you. Or, you know, he's like inspiring them. And some of the people, I know this because some of the people on his shows in the last five years, they got their first opportunities to do makeup or to do hair or to do wardrobe. And some of the people on the porter themselves, like uh, Jordan Oram, who became like the youngest black director of photography, that's Charles Officer. Mm-hmm. The, this is his legacy. It, the way it came across to me from Charles is like, it's not, it's not good enough for me just to make it. We all have to make it. There's a, there's a story about extras on the porter. Oh, my gosh. You know, when we first got to Winnipeg, the people that were in charge of background, they didn't have a lot of uh, people of color. They didn't have a lot of black people in in their roster. So we had to canvas on the radio, you know, um, and TV and news to bring people in. Eventually, a large group of black people came in at the studio we were at. Charles was up on this balcony. And he started telling the speech about the porters themselves. But he empowered in them that this is about you. This is your story. Mm. You've got some tread on this thing. And take it. And they did. And by the time Charles finished, they were standing up cheering. Mm. How can it not bring a tear to your eyes? And throughout that entire show of the Porter shooting in Winnipeg, these people felt like the show was theirs. 
it's leadership, what you're describing there, on top of the, the creative force he clearly was. When was the last time you were able to speak with him? Wednesday. Mm. And, um, you know, sometimes we take things for, for, for granted, but Charles didn't. Even in his hospital bed and dealing with the ailment that he had, all he wanted to do was get back to work. He wanted to read scripts. He, you know, he wanted to share ideas. He wanted to hear your ideas. That's all he wanted to do. And it just makes me think like when I'm working on a project and it's it's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night and you're getting a little tired, it's like, you know, who am I to say that I got to pack it up tonight hmm. when Charles is sitting there in a hospital bed thinking about the next scene. Arnold, I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you very much for for sharing your memories. Yeah, yeah. I um I miss my brother. Thank you. Thank you. Arnold Pinnock is an actor and the co-creator of the CBC series The Porter. Four of the show's eight episodes were directed by Charles Officer. Mr. Officer died late last week at age 48. In The Sound of Music, Christopher Plummer famously sings a version of Edelweiss, except he doesn't really. Genuine spoiler alert, Mr. Plummer's voice is dubbed over by a singer named Bill Lee in the original soundtrack for the film. So for decades, fans of Captain Von Trapp were left to speculate. Was he off-key? Did he mess up the lyrics? Was Christopher Plummer just an awful singer? Well, it turns out he sounds great. In the recently released special edition of the film, we get to hear the original audio. And it makes you wonder why he was ever dubbed over in the first place. Here's Christopher Plummer singing Edelweiss from The Sound of Music's Super Deluxe Edition. Edelweiss, Edelweiss, every morning you greet me, small and white, clean and bright. You look happy to meet me Blossom of snow may you bloom and grow Bloom and grow Christopher Plummer singing Edelweiss live on set from the super deluxe edition of The Sound of Music. For a fleeting moment, Tumaj Salahi was a free man. The Iranian hip-hop artist and activist was arrested, not for the first time, in October 2022. 
At the time, Iranians were staging widespread protests after the death of Masa Amini in police custody, and Mr. Salehi was accused of being one of their leaders. He was indicted on a number of charges, the most serious of which translates to corruption on earth and is punishable by death. In July, he was sentenced to a further six years in prison, and then on November 18th, he was released. All too briefly, though. As of last week, he's in custody again, which Yi Wan Ri figured would happen after he released a video on social media. Ms. Ri is a member of the Bundestag and is too much Salehi's political sponsor in Germany. We reached her in Aachen. Yuan, in your mind, was this always going to happen? Was it a matter of time before he was arrested again? It is really hard to say. That's the question I ask myself. Like, was it a plan, pl- their plan along just to show that they have that um, power over him? Or maybe he just, like, uh, triggered them with um, the video and the things that, th- that he said. I don't really know. Maybe they saw that he might be broken and not be talking about his stay in prison at all. I don't really know. It mm-hmm. could be both. He was defiant, perhaps not broken, g- given that video that that you just mentioned there. He... He described in it the conditions of his detention and denied that he cooperated at all with, with security forces in Iran. Yes. The video is in Farsi, so could you just give our listeners a sense of what he, he was saying there? Um, he was talking about um, his like his stay in prison, like how he was treated, that he was tortured, um, that he was tortured um, visibly. Um, that he got injuries out of it, but he was um, also tortured by something called white torture, just being um, in in isolation the whole time, just uh, not being able to sleep because the light is on the whole time, mm-hmm. being threatened. So he was very open and he was very, very honest about what, he, what happened to him. And he was also talking about um, all those accusations that he made deals with the regime and that he um, um, he like apologized for stuff that he didn't do and he 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 just said that that's not true and he never did that um, so he was pretty clear about everything that happened since a year ago when he was in prison the first time is defiant the right word to describe his tone how would you describe it um, I have the feeling that it was very important to him that um, everybody who, is keep, who keeps fighting for freedom in Iran and who was um, still brave enough to go on the streets knows that he is still with them. I don't really know how to, like, it, mm-hmm. you, you see that it's not very easy for him. You see that he um, is still um, dealing with all the trauma himself, but it was very important to him to get this message out. And um, when you look at it, that like just a couple of days later, he was um, um, imprisoned or kidnapped again. So it was like the right time to do that, because otherwise he might not have had the time to, to make some things clear. So, yeah, well, al- do you think but it also could have been the reason why he was rearrested. So it's remarkable that he took that risk. Yeah, he is pretty courageous. He knew exactly the risk he was taking. Um, but it's still very tragic on an, on, on his personal point do- of view. Do you know uh, any any further details about the circumstances of his arrest at this point? Um, as far as I know, he was not taken in Isfahan. Isfahan is the city that he was imprisoned in. Um, it was another place in the country. He was with other people who seemed to have gotten out again. He, they were being freed. So I, I think, as far as I know, he is the only one still um, attained. Um, we don't 
know exactly where where he, they took him. So it's something that is very worrying because it's very similar to the situation um, last year when we didn't know where he was, how he was doing for a couple of months, and it was very very um, worrying for all of us. So. I don't really know how they are treating him or how he is doing. Mm-hmm. So um, it's 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 torture for everybody who is concerned of him. So I really hope that they will um, um, set him free again. But you never know. Do you? We yeah. mentioned in the introduction to this conversation that you're his political sponsor in Germany. Mm-hmm. What exactly does that entail, and and what kind of power does that give you, if any, to try to help him? Political sponsors are not something that is a guarantee for his life or for his safety, but I can make sure that um, it is seen and heard what he's doing and how he is being treated. And um, the good thing is that as a parliamentarian in Germany, um, I have um, more freedom to express whatever um, needed to be said because I don't have any ties to Iran. I don't have any family there. And it's still some kind of respect that is shown to parliamentarians from Germany or from other parliamentar- parliaments all over the world. So that's something that we are using to to um, put more attention on his case and other cases. So um, right now um, we are doing everything all over again to spread his word because if the regime doesn't want the video to be seen and if that's the reason why they are um, putting him into prison again then everybody should know what he was talking about um so far i have written around 100 letters to the um, iranian ambassador in 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 berlin and i i guess he's getting more letters from me now because i'm pretty much demanding that um, Tumar Saleh is being released, all accusations are dropped. And I really want to see him myself. I want to convince myself um, for myself that he is doing well because um, so far uh, they have been telling a lot of untruths. When he was initially released last month, you posted online on social media, quote, freedom on bail is not real freedom, unquote. How are you feeling at this point about the chances that he will ever enjoy real freedom again? He will never be free except if the regime is changing and if the regime is, is um, stopping the terror he's do- they are doing on their own people because that's what they are doing. They are putting um, a terror on their people. They are putting people on um, p- people's mind on unease because they all know that whatever they say or whatever they do, they can always be put in prison. They can be killed on the street. They can be tortured. So it's, it's not really freedom that they are, that they are living in right now. Johan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for covering it. Thank you so much. Johan Rie is too much Salahi's political sponsor in Germany. We reached her in Aachen, Germany. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.